Hey, y'all. I hope you're having a blessed week. Uh, And thank you for joining in for this podcast or however you're listening. Uh, Today, I want to look at John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, and focus on the rebuke of Mary and her response. This rebuke from Jesus and the response leads to the first sign in the Gospel of John. And if, if you haven't noticed in John's gospel, there's something different that happens. Instead of him saying miracles, he calls them signs. And there's six signs or seven signs altogether, the seventh being Jesus raised from the dead. But the, there's six before that. The first one is what we're going to look at today, where Jesus turns water into wine. The second is in chapter four, where John where Jesus heals a sick boy. And then you have a sign in chapter 5, a healing of a paralyzed man. Uh, Chapter 6, you have feeding the 5,000. Chapter 9, you have healing a blind man. And chapter 6, you have raising, I mean, chapter 11, you have raising Lazarus from the dead. And then the last sign is when Jesus raised from the grave. And these are kind of all pointing to a new creation. And it's a beautiful way that John's kind of set up his Gospels. And it's something to pay attention to as we're reading. But you'll notice he's the one who doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. These amazing acts when Jesus does them. He doesn't say miracles. He says signs. Like he's pointing us to a direction. He's pointing us towards the end where Jesus raises from the grave. And today, I really want to unpack this first sign that happens. And something that happens right before it. In John chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 which lots of scholars call the rebuke of Mary. And it's interesting, this whole interaction. And I really want to dive into it with you. But first, let's look at the remote context around this passage. Like I said, this passage includes the first sign in John's gospel. And it actually stands out a little bit more because there's no really discourse or interpretation of the sign there's no discourse afterwards you just have this this act and then the story seems to move on and this sign connects jesus's redemptive power to the old testament promise of supernatural agricultural abundance to be provided in the days of the messiah some relevant old testament texts if you want to look up some of the things are genesis 49 uh, verses 11 to 12 Proverbs 9, you got Isaiah 25, 6, 50, chapter 55, verses 1 to 3, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 12, Joel chapter 2, verse 19, and verses 22 to 24, and then Joel chapter 3, verse 18, you have Amos chapter 9, uh, verses 13 to 14, and Zechariah chapter 9, verse 17. So there's lots throughout the Old Testament. Of the Messiah kind of when he's around this supernatural agricultural abundance that was going to happen. And in this story, Jesus turns water into wine. And it's kind of pointing to some of those Old Testament connections. It's specifically pointing to the abundance of, of wine that was influenced by the Elijah narrative. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, which supplies a really good Old Testament background for this sign. 
which makes for me the audience because a lot of times we want to figure out the audience what's the audience that the gospel of john the writer is writing towards because we're all going to write stuff to our audience to try to you know taking into account their lens their perspective and trying to speak their language so what's the audience for this gospel what's the audience john is writing to and some scholars believe it was only intended for gentiles but recently there's been a lot more believing it may have been written to both jews and gentiles who were god fearers which i believe we have a lot of connections pointing to that you know these close connections and references reference points to the old testament makes me think that this was letter was written to gentile and jewish uh, god fears people who kind of had some understanding of god and i could be completely wrong about that there's lots of scholarly thought about it but that's the way i would lean and now that we have some of the remote context in this book i want to look at some of the proximate context proximate context is what's happening right before and right after the story remotes kind of you know bird's eye view what's going on what's john's got letter all about what's some connections to some you know different bible passages proximate kind of you know what's right before and what's after and i want to look at that now So let's look at this proximate context. It's pretty clear that this passage we're looking at today that I'll read in a second, we're only focusing on one event. And it's found in the beginning of John, where Jesus attends a wedding celebration. And we know this because in verse 1 the passage we're looking at today begins with on the third day, which clearly indicates a new thought and a new event occurring in this gospel. We read that Jesus, his mother and followers were invited to a wedding in Canaan in Galilee, which clearly ends in verse 12 because we read after this he went down to Capernaum. So it's pretty clear that this is like a new thought, a new event in the gospel of John. It's not mixed between two others, it's why we're looking at the whole thing. And what I'm going to do now is I want to read this passage with you before we look into it anymore. So if you want, you can open up your Bibles if you're driving. Yeah, don't open up your Bibles because that would be dangerous. You might hit a car or something and yeah, that wouldn't be good at all. But I'm going to read from the NLT version. Your version I'm mean, not NLT. Sorry guys. I meant NIV. If you got a different version, it might sound a bit different, but yeah, this is what we read in the story. So I'm just going to read this whole st- story and then we're going to unpack it together. On the third day, a wedding took place at Canaan in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, "They have no more wine." "Woman, why do you involve me?" Jesus replied, "My hour has not yet come." His mother said to the servants, "Do whatever he tells you." 
Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servant, Servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. It's really interesting when reading that because John doesn't refer to Mary by name in his gospel, but instead refers to her at the very beginning, the mother of Jesus. And there are only two occasions that the mother of Jesus is mentioned in the gospel of John, which is in this passage and at the foot of the cross. And I think it's important that we reflect on that and we take note of that. Because in verse 1, when we read the term mother, we need to step back. We need to realize there is only one other time in the New Testament this exact phrase is used. And it really appears that in John 2, that Jesus, this term that he's using for mother, is used in a symbolic sense as a representative figure for the church pointing to something bigger. In verse 3, I find it interesting, in this text I just read, Mary kind of learns about the wine. You know, so it means she must have been close. If she was able to find this out, they must have been close to the people celebrating this wedding. We don't know how close, but they must have been close. It must have been family. How far distant family, I guess you could debate. And it's interesting that after she figures this out, she approaches Jesus, which really indicates he is the head of the family at this stage. We don't know what happened to Jesus' earthly father, what, what transpired, but it's clear at this point in our story that Jesus is the head of the family. And it appears, by the way we read this story, that only his disciples witness this dialogue and who knows there could have been more it could have been there could be stuff john's leaving out i know the the chosen which is an awesome series that looks into the life of jesus and has a great way of you know i guess unpacking what could have happened and reading in between the lines and doing some midrash is what it's called where you kind of unpack the story in between the lines you fill in the gaps And they really, 
do this first sign. And they have an episode on it, and it's beautiful the way they set it up. So it could have been completely different. But for me, when I read it, it kind of gives the appearance, at least by the way the story is written, that no one else witnessed this dialogue. And we need to be clear, too, that any thought we might have that Jesus just rocked up randomly with these followers isn't the case. It's just pure conjuncture. We're just guessing. Because it makes it clear at the beginning of our story that they were invited to the wedding. So the reason the wine went out isn't because Jesus rocked up with, you know, hundreds of followers and no one expected it. They were invited. The wedding planners knew they were coming. They would have prepared for it. And I love how when Mary comes to make a statement to Jesus, she just says, there is no more wine. I just find that really interesting. I don't know why. I think it's just interesting how she just gets straight to the point. And it's kind of like she's assuming Jesus could help, knowing his resourcefulness, knowing his true identity. Having, you know, the miraculous birth and being his mother for a while, seeing him grow up, she knows there's something special. There's something different. So she kind of goes to him expecting this resourcefulness. And we need to remember that the address found in verse 4, which is Ganaya, probably didn't say that right, but... It, it means, dear, in the NIV, you'll read, dear woman. In mine, in the in. Whoa. Sorry, cancel that. You read woman. Sorry, I made a mistake. And it, we need to sit back, because a lot of times we call this a rebuke, because culturally, calling her woman isn't demeaning, but it's not typical for a son to use that to address a mother that's valuable to him. I mean, just think about that. You wouldn't probably approach your mom by calling her woman when she asks you something. I think if I did that to my mom as a kid, I might have got, you know, what, smacked on the head or something. Or I definitely know if, if my kids were addressing uh, my wife Kim as woman, they might get in trouble for it. Their mom might go, oh, excuse me, is that how we talk? It's not something we typically say. And I believe this was a rebuke for Mary approaching Christ in a matter that concerned the Godhead. Attempting to use her position or authority or the life experiences she had with Jesus to evoke a response. And I don't think Jesus is addressing her this way to be callous or anything like that. Rather to make a point that no one can approach Christ on an inside track regardless of status. Doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done. Because let's face it, the mother of Jesus in the end must approach Christ as the Messiah, not as his mother which I believe is way harder than we could ever imagine. 
I couldn't imagine this conundrum for Mary. And it's important to note that while this is a rebuke, it's not really severe. Because Jesus speaks to his mother from the cross with this same term. You know, in John chapter 19, verse 26, he says, Woman, behold your son. So this isn't some super harsh rebuke. But it is a rebuke. Even if it's just a slight one. You know, like when someone does something and you you still love them, but you're like, I just need to tell them that made me a little bit upset. Like one of those kind of rebukes. Nothing major, just a slight one. And I love Mary's response in verse 5 that we see. How she kind of responds and shows that um, the ability to unburden herself from this gentle rebuke that's just happened. Which exemplifies the best kind of preserving faith. Because she approaches Jesus as his mother at first. Expecting something, invoking a response, trying to get something because of her status and shared life experience and trying to, to do something different. And she's rebuked. Even though it's a gentle rebuke, we can't look past that. Typically for a valued mother, you're not going to address her as a woman. But perhaps that was part of the sword that would pierce her soul. That the Gospel of Luke talks about in chapter 2, verse 35. And she responds to all of this happening as a believer, and her faith is honored. She simply goes and she grabs the servants. And she tells the servants to do everything that he says. Do whatever he tells you. And she walks off and she leaves it. Trusting and having faith. Because Jesus to this point has not told her yes according to the story we're reading. He's not said yes mama dude. There's no indication that he said that yet. But Mary still has faith. She comes to him as a follower. Looks at the servants and says, you know, do whatever he tells you. Probably knowing that he had the power to do something amazing, but leaving it up to Jesus. Not trying to invoke or force a certain response. And the story goes on where Jesus does this miracle, where he turns water into wine, but not just any wine, the finest wine you could taste. So much so that this guy running the banquet, which if you know anything, and it would be good to watch, that chosen episode I mentioned earlier, but like banquet people were kind of like, I guess nowadays, like a celebrant, like someone who's a paid celebrant. They go to weddings, they do all these things, they know the status, they know what happens. And he is blown away by the wine, blown away by the quality of the wine. So Jesus doesn't just turn the water into any of your daggy cheap wines. He somehow turns it into the most expensive, most amazing wine you could imagine that takes this banquet master by surprise. The master of the banquet is taken back. 
And one thing that's important when we dive into scripture, to these ancient stories, is we need to look at the application. See what applications there might be for us. And I believe the application is extremely important. And the implication behind the rebuke and response of Mary is the same in our Western Western Christianity today as it was for first century Christians in their cultural context. Because this rebuke points to the fact that no one can approach Christ on an inside track. Because regardless of your, of your position or being the mother of Jesus, we must all come to Christ as a follower, always remaining humble. Not trying to use our status or past events or past things God might have done through us to evoke a certain response. Staying humble. And humble doesn't mean we beat ourselves up either. We need to be careful about that. We have a divine fingerprint that God's created us with. So we don't beat ourselves up, but we remain humble knowing that it's through Christ. It's through leaning in more and more to God that the good parts of us get magnified. And I believe in the cultural context this was written, it would have had huge implications. One, because Jesus is in Galilee. And for the first time in Jewish history, God was reaching out to the Gentiles. You know, throughout John's gospel, you get this writing of Jesus doing something bigger than just the Jewish movement, than just the Jewish community. Something wider, something something we can never imagine. He's breaking all these boxes and cultural boundaries. And this passage is showing that all have to come to Christ the same regardless of any position or status, regardless of where they're born, regardless of how they've been brought up, regardless of how they dress, how they talk, how they look, it doesn't matter. You, We all have to come to Christ the same as followers with humility in our heart. God is kind of showing that the time of only the ordained priests entering the temple had gone. God is doing something greater than the temple. It's bigger than any temple or monument or anything we could ever try to build. And I think an an application we can take away from this that I want to suggest would be to, to look at it in the area of prayer. Where I believe far too often we don't approach Christ with a servant heart. I mean, if we observe what Western 
churches and Western Christianity, we tend to dictate to God in our prayers, telling him what we want, what he needs to do, how he needs to help us, how he needs to intervene. Instead of simply pouring out our heart, our innermost being to God and laying it at God's feet. And then simply just responding with faith. Knowing that God has heard us, that God is with us. Because that's showing a truly servant heart like the mother of Jesus did in the story we looked at today. And we need to know that our status, no matter if we're, you know, a youth group leader, youth pastor, children's pastor, kids and families pastor, senior pastor, missionary, whatever, you know, our status might be, no matter if we've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years. It doesn't guarantee us anything. It doesn't promise that everything's going to work out rosy for us. It doesn't promise us any, it doesn't change anything because we all have to come to Christ the same as followers with humility in our hearts. And I believe we can see how much humility we have in our hearts by looking at our prayers, looking at how we pray and reach out to God. Do we sit, do we lay things at the feet of the cross and then sit with God in the silence, emptying ourselves to him, trusting that God is with us, that God hears us, not demanding or dictating signs and miracles, simply trusting and having faith that our God can do the impossible. And I think that's something we should all be asking ourselves, especially especially after looking at a story like that. And I really hope you've enjoyed this podcast. We're going to do, or how are you listening to this? You might have heard it on the radio. Who knows? I don't know. Could put it on the airways and it could just start flying magically into different places. I don't understand technology. I'm just a bit simple, but I don't know how you're hearing this. But I just hope however you heard this, you just remember that God loves you and we all have to come to him the same. doesn't matter who we are. We have to come to him as a follower, believing in Christ and his teachings and what he taught us through his teaching. How he showed us that love wins. Do we really believe in that? Do we really come to God with humility in our hearts? Or do we think because of our status, our position, our longevity as a Christ follower or whatever puts us in a better spot? We really need to ask ourselves those kind of questions. And I think we can see how much humility we have if we look at our prayers. That's just one of a dozen other areas that I'm sure becomes very clear how humble we are. 
But to grow, we need to do the inner work. We need to stop pointing out and doing the inner work. So I want to encourage you to do the inner work and to have grace with yourself and to remember that love wins. May God's grace and peace be with you.